Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. We will continue in our study in this chapter. Earlier in the chapter this morning, we saw that God has provided for us uh, something that was not available to our Old Testament brethren, and that is entrance right into his very throne room in heaven through the work of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven and taken out of the way. Uh, He has placed his spirit within us. Uh, He has given us a new spirit, a new heart, and the communion of his Holy Spirit with our spirit and the access provided by Jesus Christ sitting at the Father's right hand gives us an amazing access and freedom of speech uh, to speak directly to our God who offers us Uh, such intimacy that uh, rather than being afraid of his name, he asks us even to come to him as Abba, Father. We also saw in chapter 10 the exhortation for us uh, not to take this lightly, uh, but to have the duty uh, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith Uh, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, but encouraging one another as we await the imminent return of our Lord Jesus. As has been the case several times in this letter so far, the author uh, to the Hebrews then turns to a strict warning for his readers. His readers are made up of uh, people much like our own churches in which there is a spectrum of those who are wholly committed, wholeheartedly serving the Lord, uh, those uh, who are not quite consistent uh, in their obedience, uh, some who he calls uh, sluggards or slow or immature, still drinking milk rather than eating the meat of the word, and uh, some, frankly, who are being disobedient, others who think they're saved when they are not. And so we have here in Hebrews 10 uh, one of these rather startling warning passages, and it reads in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, there's just something wrong with me in the way in which I think, uh, because no sooner would I read a verse like this than I would raise my hand and they would call on me and I would say, how much sin is too much sin? And they would say back to me, you've got the entire wrong attitude asking how much sin can I get away with without uh, actually uh, being condemned and having a sacrifice for sins removed. And I'm just sort of curious that way. I think, well, it says if we go on sinning willfully, how much is willful sin? What gradation of sin is that? And many of us have, as we look around the body, we would say like, oh, I see a number of strata within our body. I see all kinds of gradations. I see many shades of gray among us. Which people are we talking about here? 
I think of uh, Paul's missionary team in which he only would take uh, the best and the brightest of those young men out on his pioneer evangelism and church planting team. And so you'd say like, wow, if I'm on that team, I must really be on fire for the Lord. And yet in Philippians 2, when Paul is saying, I could be tied up here for a while and uh, I may not be able to come to you soon, I'm going to have to send one of my associates, he explains how, well, let's see, who can I send? I'll have to send Timothy. And then he makes a startling description of the rest of his group. Uh, he says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who would be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And you say, you made it on Paul's pioneer evangelism church planting team, and he can't trust you to go to Philippi and encourage those brothers and then bring a report back because you're self-centered? But that's exactly what he said. He says, only Timothy has grown to the point where he would put your interests above his own. And that should reprove all of us where we would say, am I like that? Would, would people evaluate me that way in which they would say, he really is a rather selfish person. He's kind of into himself. He's kind of like thinking of his own interests first. Only later on might he come aware of your own problems and your needs and be willing to minister to you. If you don't think this is a big problem, uh, we read in 2 Timothy 4, 9, that one of Paul's team members, Demas, actually just walked away from them. He writes in his last epistle, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And you'd say, like, how can that happen? He was a trusted helper. He was a leader in churches, and he just walks away. But it says he cares more about the things of the world than he does about the local church. This is a problem. Reading uh, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, he realizes that uh, some of the people who are accepted in the meeting uh, do not belong in the meeting, and people like this need to be kicked out of the meeting. He says, remove him from your midst. He said his sin was so grave that it wouldn't have even been tolerated among the unbelievers, much less in his church. In fact, he says, I'm going to deliver such a one over to Satan. And you say, like, well, there's the end. He's going to hell. No, that's not what he says. For the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Really? You could give a sinful believer in your midst over to Satan so that his spirit would be saved? In other words, take him out of this life quickly before it gets any worse? You'd say like, wow, there are problems sometimes in our churches. In fact, even in the worship meeting. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he speaks of those who have not adequately prepared themselves and come in a hypocritical manner, hiding sin before God, seeking to worship him publicly, uh, remembering the Lord in what we call the breaking of bread. And he says, 
That's why a number are weak or sick or sleep, meaning that they, as believers, have been taken home early as judgment for their sin. And you begin to realize, you know, in our body, there is an entire strata of problems with sin. And these are things that we should take seriously and not tolerate in our lives. And we should realize if this can happen to some of the best of us, I ought to guard myself carefully. I ought to be very careful not to allow myself to fall into temptation or be too tolerant of sin for fear that the Lord might have to discipline me in a similar manner. But if we go back to the context of Hebrews chapter 10, when he speaks of people such as this who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, saying that there is no longer a sacrifice for sins for these kinds of people, he's not speaking of genuine believers who are then falling away. He's speaking of people who've been associated with the church, who have seen what the church is doing, actually visibly seeing the Holy Spirit at work in them, uh, but do not have hearts who have been changed. He's not speaking of those uh, who are believers who are then falling into difficulty that may be judged in the manner that I've just described. He's speaking of people that in chapter 3 he described as having an evil, unbelieving heart, chapter 3, verse 12. He's speaking of people in our midst, in our meetings, who, with skepticism, have seen the work of the Holy Spirit and still are unchanged. Now, for many of us, we say, like, how is that even possible? How could you be in the meeting? How could you be viewed as one of us? How could you have seen the Spirit working in people's lives and turn against the Spirit? That makes no sense to us as believers. And yet, frankly, the other kinds of sin that I've been describing make no sense to us either. We'd say, like, why would a person who has received the kindness of our Lord, has been given access into the Lord's throne room, able to talk directly to God himself, tolerate sin in his life? We just say that makes no sense at all. But I invite you into the lives of the 12 disciples that followed our Lord hand-picked by our Lord to spend three, three and a half years with him, getting to know him personally, and would carry on his work as his witnesses, witnesses of his life, witnesses of his death, witnesses of his resurrection. In that group, you see a Peter, for example, a leader among them, one of the most outspoken, one of the brashest, one of the ones who would say to the Lord, no, no, that will not happen to you. Hearing warnings from our Lord saying, Satan is after you. He's seeking to sift you like wheat. Be careful. But he'll say, no, Lord, I will fight for you. I will bring a sword to protect you. And then deny our Lord with rough language three times. And you'd say, like, can that happen to the likes of Peter? But there's someone else in that group 
that I think is a very good example of the kind of person that's being described here in Hebrews in this warning passage, and that is Judas Iscariot. The other 11 were from Galilee. Judas Iscariot was from Judea. The other of them were more middle class. Uh, Judas was of high class. Judas was so trusted among them that he was the one that kept the purse. He was the one that received the gifts that were given to the group for their sustenance so they could live as they were moving about and ministering. He was the one that would distribute funds to the poor. He was trusted, and yet he was an imposter. Because he wanted a place in Christ's kingdom. He was in it to govern a territory with his own power and prestige. And as it became clear that Jesus was being rejected and would not set up his kingdom in this coming and would have to come again, Judas cut his losses and denied and actually betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a gourd slave. Judas went out and hanged himself and demonstrated no repentance other than the repentance that what he had done was a complete betrayal. Judas is an example of a person who could be among us, not saved, not believing, in it for what he can get out of it, and a person who could cut his losses and just walk away. Judas is the example of a person with an evil unbelieving heart. This passage is not talking about believers losing their salvation. This passage is a warning to those who are under the hearing of the word of God and who know themselves not to be believers, who go on sinning willfully after having listened to the knowledge of the truth. He says, for people like that, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Back in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, it speaks of a sin committed there for which there is no sacrifice. It's spoken of as sinning with a high hand, the kind of hand that would form a fist towards God and would angrily shake that fist at God. And these kinds of people do not have an opportunity to continue on because they will not ever repent from their solidified decision to reject Jesus Christ. It says in verse 27, Hebrews 10, 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This judgment is expecting or waiting for them, and they should be fearful of the prospect of this kind of judgment. They are fakes. Now, what surprises us about this is that most of us aren't looking for these kinds of gradations that I'm describing. Most of us are just so happy-go-lucky that we just say, like, Come on in, the water's fine, and come in among us. And we're not careful to say sin 
is serious, and God judges sin. Peter took it very seriously. When Peter had denied our Lord, he thought his opportunity to serve the Lord was over. He decided to go back to the profession of fishing, and he talked to a number of the other disciples to say, let's go back fishing, and out fishing they were when Jesus hunted him down. And Peter thought, Jesus came after me? Why would he want me? When John pointed him out from way out in the boat, Peter swam ashore, ran to the Lord, and the Lord was gracious in restoring him. The Lord had remembered how there had been boasting among the disciples as to which one loved him the more. And so he kept asking Peter three times, just like the three denials, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter was hurt by what Jesus was asking because he knew he loved the Lord, and yet he felt that he'd failed the Lord so greatly that the Lord would never use him again. Do you know that's possible? In fact, my best friend in college felt that was possible for him. He felt he'd been in such a disappointment to the Lord that the Lord could never use him again. We sometimes feel that way about ourselves, and we ourselves take ourselves away from service for the Lord, punishing ourselves for the disappointment we've been not only to the Lord but to ourselves, not understanding the grace of God in restoring people. And our Lord recommissioned Peter and asked him to go shepherd his sheep and to tend his lambs. And Peter did so faithfully. He became a wonderful leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And when you read his letters, you say, that's a fisherman. That man knows the word of God, and that man has such deep wisdom. We can listen well and long to Peter, and we would have to admit that we too have at times failed the Lord, and yet the Lord is gracious in restoring us. However, there are some in our churches, who with a high hand defiantly still deny the work of Jesus Christ and are not believers. And this warning is coming to them to say, you will not survive the judgment of the Lord. Verse 28 says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You could commit sins like murder or adultery or perjury. All of those are forgivable. But defiant, willful sin is not forgivable. And he says, if you could be stoned to death in the Old Testament economy, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Speaking of this, flagrant contempt for Jesus and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This sanctification is not speaking of an internal change in this person's life. He's only been outwardly identified with the people of God. What's being described here is a person who looks like he's a member of this church but is actually not because he considers it a common thing, the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood that's established this covenant in which God has forgiven our sins and invited us right into his throne room. 
just as there was an unpardonable sin for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, so in this case, he has insulted the Spirit of grace. The Spirit's testimony has received an insult from this kind of person who, with his eyes wide open, understanding the free gospel that has been preached, that we are saved by grace apart from works, that if we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. Hearing that, understanding that, knowing that, he turns away and rejects. At times we as believers say, how could a person do that? And yet we look at the person Judas and we say, that can happen. People can reject the grace that is offered to him. It's amazing how proud people can become in their own independence and their desire to be self-serving. The reason he says in verse 30 is, so, for we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And the Lord will vindicate those who are true and remove the false from us. And he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Within my own family, I have individuals that we pray for regularly that I wonder about their eternal status. They know the gospel. They can quote back to you what the gospel requires of us, which is not works, but faith. They understand that if they were to believe in Jesus Christ and entrust themselves to him, they would be saved. And yet, they will not. Jesus has straight out said, if you deny me, I will deny you. A friend of our families who decided to come out publicly as a homosexual and post it on various forms of social media, I saw it the very first day it came out, and he said straight out in his blog, I deny Jesus Christ. He'd grown up in uh, the Bible camps, the Bible college movement. I got him on the phone right away, and I said, why would you say that? Do you not know what Jesus says about the person who straight out says that he denies Jesus? He says, I know what he's saying. I said, then why would you say that? And he says, because I know the choice that I've made. I've decided to live an open homosexual life, and I know what God thinks about homosexuality. And he says, I can't claim to be a Christian, and to be honest, I'm turning my back against God and turning away from him, and so I am telling all my Christian friends, I am denying Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It is truly unbelievable. And you say, how can a person with his eyes wide open knowing the truth, do that, say that. And yet the scripture warns us of people like this. And consequently, we would seek to tell people the truth 
as the writer to the Hebrews has told his readers. There are all kinds of people in the group that he's mentioned. There are people who are going on for the Lord. There are people who are slow in their spiritual development. He calls them sluggards. He calls them immature. He says, you're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat. He said, you should be teachers by now. You're so slow. And there are people who are tolerating sin that he says they should not. And surprisingly, he says, there are some among you who have no place among you because they are denying Jesus Christ. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This young man that I was describing just moments ago, I've called him up regularly and asked him, where are you? Are you do you still believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth? He still believes that God's the creator of heaven and earth. I say, do you still believe that Jesus is God's son? Yes, I do. I say, where are you in this? Do you pray to God at all? Do you tell him your struggle? Do you explain to him what's going on in your life? He says, I can't speak to God. And so we pray for him. And we pray that God's mercy will be upon him and that he will repent and turn from his sin and embrace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then speaking to the others, he says, do you remember your former days, verse 32, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings? Some of you are getting a little shaky because of the persecution you're receiving. Those you live among are making it hard on you because you have converted from a false understanding of Judaism, this belief that Judaism is an external performance-based desire to cause God to be motivated to accept you on the basis of your works, to the truth of Christianity. And yet now you are beginning to waver because of the persecution, and you wonder, would it be easier to revert back to Judaism? Don't you remember the sufferings that you've gone through already? Verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Your former buddies are verbally abusing you. Your former compatriots are physically abusing you. You showed sympathy to prisoners, he says in verse 34. You went to people who'd been imprisoned. You fed them. You encouraged them. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Don't waver. You've already been through so much. But folks, this is easy for any of us to become discouraged because so many of us say, what's the point of living for Christ if my life is so difficult? Why doesn't God make my life easier, more enjoyable? I am suffering greatly. I feel great pain and anguish for the things that I'm going through. Maybe I should just give up. When we're encouraged, we don't feel good, like giving up. 
But when we're discouraged, we fill our minds with all kinds of detrimental thoughts, thinking like, well, maybe the Lord doesn't love me. Maybe there's no point in continuing to serve him. Maybe I should just back away. But then he says, not only remembering all that you've been through already, he says in verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. The word there translated confidence literally means freedom of speech. He's speaking of the access that we have right into God's throne room of grace, able in our prayers to speak freely, pouring out our hearts to God. He's saying, why would you give up this access that you have to him? Don't throw it away. Press on. Have endurance. Plead before God himself for strength and hope. When we read the Psalms, particularly Psalms written by David, in which he speaks of how he feels near to death, and he feels as if God's not listening, and he feels as if God's not watching, and yet in hope he continues to cry out and say, God, rescue me. When I read the stories of David, I know he sinned greatly, but I also know that he was a man after God's own heart. And I wonder, why is God so rough on him? Why doesn't he make his life easier? Uh, referring back to what I think may have been uh, part of what was referred to in this passage, when Absalom, his own son, was overthrowing David from his throne, and David was running for his life. You'd say like, Lord, why are you doing this to him? And yet we could, with person after person, going through the scriptures, say, why did you do to Job what you allowed to happen to him? Why did you let Satan attack Job? Or why did you let happen what happened to Joseph? Why did you let his brothers beat him up and sell him into slavery in Egypt? Why, why, why? We could say over and over again from person to person in the Old Testament as we read these stories, why didn't you make their lives easier? And the answer is it's not his purpose necessarily to make their lives easier as much as it is to have them in their difficulties glorify the Lord. Just recently I was in a local Bible study of an assembly, not my own, but one that I occasionally go to in which they were studying the book of Ruth. They had such beautiful insights into the story of Ruth, and we were seeing with such beautiful relief the way in which God turned around the story of Naomi and Ruth. How Naomi says, call me bitter. My life is bitter. The Lord has not seemed to be kind to me in the loss of my husband and my sons. And yet there's such hope and there's such beauty that comes out of the story of Ruth. None of us should say to ourselves that God has given up on us. None of us should say to ourselves that God does not love us. In the difficulty, God's love can shine through with greater relief and clarity and beauty than even through the easiest of times. Peter was so much more grateful for the Lord's acceptance of him and recommissioning him for service that he redoubled his interest in serving the Lord. 
The Apostle Paul, having persecuted Jesus, viewing himself as the chief of sinners, was all the more motivated to serve the Lord with zeal, saying, with the way in which I served myself in prioritizing my own interests in persecuting followers of Jesus Christ, I now want to be a wholehearted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show myself as one who has come to understand the truth of grace and be a preacher of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's quite possible that though we might give up on ourselves and at times wonder, should I give up on the Lord, to say, he's calling on me to exercise endurance. Verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. From whom do we receive the endurance we need? From our high priest, Jesus Christ himself. If we couple endurance with the will of God, what will we receive? this promised reward of future rest. And yet, it is not an easy journey. When my father was 48 years old, his doctor told him that he was beginning to not take good enough care of himself. And since his father had died at an early age, he says, you're heading to the same grave that your father went unless you change your life. It was 1968, and he decided, I'm going to run. Nike had just come out with their very first running shoe, and he bought that uh, first model and began to run. He didn't know how to run, so he went to my elementary school, and on the grass outside the field, he just ran laps around there. And in order to see if he was accomplishing anything, he would time himself to see if he was getting any faster. Alan Cranston, a senator in California, would send him letters regularly talking about what he was doing and mentioned that he ran in what was called the Senior Olympics. My father had never heard of such a thing. But he thought, like, you mean seniors compete against other seniors in running? And so he started entering races. And he'd invite my mother and we as children to come watch him race, and he'd always come in dead last. It was really rather an embarrassment. <laughs> but he kept after it. Because he had been an orphan at age 12, and he didn't want to make us orphans. He says, I'm going to get myself healthy. And he just ran and ran and ran with such determination. My father became the best runner for his age in all of California. He became within the top 5% of of runners his age in the entire United States and the top 10% of all runners his age in the entire world. He became truly a world-class runner. One of the interesting things about running marathons is he says there's this wall that you hit at mile 20 with just six miles to go. He says your body announces to you that the energy that it had has been completely used up. And you feel as if you can't take another step. You've already gone 20, you only have six miles to go, and you say, like, but I feel like I can't go any further at all. 
And he says, but all your body's doing is switching over to a different power source, burning a different form of energy. If you just push through it, that energy kicks in and you can finish the race. I feel like many of us in our Christian walks don't understand that there are times when we feel as if our energy source is completely wiped out and we can't go on spiritually at all and we feel like giving up. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't you remember how much you've already been through? You withstood those verbal abuses, those physical abuses. You've had your property seized. You've gone to visit the folks in prison and encourage them. Don't throw away the freedom of access to God's throne. What a privilege that is. All you need is endurance, and that he will give you. If you choose the will of God, and cling to that which is promised. I don't know if you become so discouraged you can't sleep. Become so discouraged you say, like, I can't even go to meetings. So discouraged that you say, I don't even want to see my friends or relatives. So discouraged that you say, I don't even like myself. God in his grace can restore you and lift you back up. The Lord Jesus Christ incentivizes us to, with endurance, finish the race set before us. Verse 37 says, this is quoting from Isaiah 26, for yet in a very little while, we think it's an astronomical amount of time later, but he says, no, in a very little while, he who's coming, speaking of Jesus Christ, will come and will not delay, quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And yet I'm asking you just to cling to the promises that God has offered you. Just believe his promises. Don't shrink back. Don't become an apostate like we've been describing. My soul has no pleasure in him. And he says to his readers, the majority of you are not the ones that I'm warning. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, speaking of perdition or eternal punishment, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This is the saving of our lives and testimonies and entrance into the reward of rest in his kingdom. And this is the end of Hebrews chapter 10, and we move immediately into Hebrews chapter 11, in which we hear of hero after hero in the Old Testament who believed the promises even though they had not yet received what the promise had offered. And yet they clung to that. And he says, will you not join them as those who cling to the truth and believe that promise and are willing to continue to follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what would motivate us, he says, so clearly is, we can go directly into God's throne room. Do you remember when Esther was asked to go ask the king, her husband, to protect the Jews? And she says, like, he's not invited me. I could get myself killed. If he doesn't raise his scepter, I'll die. 
she's told, perhaps for this reason you were born. For this reason you become queen. To rescue your people from sure destruction. Go in there and speak to your husband. And bravely she does so. God asks us to trust him. And we have access right into the throne of God. And we can tell him exactly how we feel. We can pour out our hearts to God and he will listen to us. We can tell him our difficulties. You, you see that in the Psalms. You see them say, Lord, this is how I feel, but I'm clinging to the hope that you're hearing my cry and I'm asking you to rescue me. And the Lord is gracious. The Lord is kind. And the Lord does answer our prayer. He asks us to trust him by faith. And so, this is what the writer to the Hebrews believes about the majority of those who are reading this letter. We are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you and say, this is what we want of us. Though our lives are not entirely pleasant, though there have been times where we've been severely tried, Though we face great difficulty, we praise you that we pray and you hear, that you fill us with your spirit and comfort us, that your spirit calms our hearts and strengthens our trust in you, that we choose to obey you and you strengthen us to obey you. Oh, Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. May we please you in all respects, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.